Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Susan, when we checked in with you last, I believed you were locked in the room where you're recording from now. Did you manage to escape? I am still in that same room, although I have managed to escape. Yeah, it was one of those things for people who do not follow me on Twitter. I got myself fully locked in our bedroom for about, it was probably two hours by the time it was done. Isn't that every mother's fantasy? I mean, I had a few minutes where I was like, this isn't so bad. Um, the thing was, is like, it started out as being kind of funny, right? I'm like, oh, I'm locked in, but like, surely we'll find a way out. And then it was, and then I tweeted about it thinking like, oh, this is a funny story. Then it suddenly became clear, like I was actually fully locked in this room and there was no way, like we couldn't get the door off the hinges. The lock was fully inside. And then it became less funny. Um, and then our friend showed up with a large ladder and had to rescue me through the window. Like a fireman. Like a fireman. While my husband was laughing, he was doing that thing where he was laughing so hard, he was trying to ask if I was okay. <laughs> but he couldn't stop laughing like long oh, enough no. to express no. the genuine concern he was attempting to uh, to express. And our neighbors, like, like I'd see them like peering out of their houses as to why what spectacle was unfolding. But here's the question. How did the kids like it? They were delighted. They sent me goldfish crackers were the only <laughs> snack that fit <laughs> under the little gap. And so they kept me supplied with goldfish. Uh, there was a point where we thought the fire department was going to have to come. And so my son, like once he thought maybe there was going to be the fire department and then there was no fire department, like that was a little bit of a letdown. Yeah, mom, really, why didn't you just call the fire department? So you teach the children, call 911. Call 911. And, you know, don't uh, slam your door. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the fa this year edition. <laughs> I haven't spelled it. Dash, dash, dash. We're going to try and maintain our non-explicit rating. Come on, I'm man. sorry. If we get 20 minutes into this without somebody saying a swear word, I do like. But I do. I do like the love. Uh, this year, <laughs> I just like to say that Susan getting locked in her room is the most 2020 thing ever. Yeah, I, I mean, I would. I might have stayed in to be honest with you. I did have my laptop and Netflix. There's a bathroom. I, mean, I don't here. know why you needed to get out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, like unless like some hot fireman was going to come rescue you, just chill <laughs> you know call it a wing i'll girl. try and break it again i'll like go jam something in the lock. well now i if don't you know what happened yelling, i'm locked in the bedroom again i don't know if listeners hear yelling in the background it's because my door doesn't shut anymore oh, because okay. now i'm even worse now i cannot lock the door and get I away from right. my family 
Boy, oh boy. Well, I am here in an unlocked room, uh, virtually talking to my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Coffin Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. It's the last rational security of 2020. Woo! Uh, we made it. Well, we made it to 2020. Yeah, it may be an out of the frying pan into the fire situation, but oh. uh, but you know, at least after the first twenty days of twenty twenty one, we will not have Donald Trump. Yeah, I think inauguration really is the line of demarcation, isn't it? At this point, for listeners of this podcast, That's oh right. boy, so you get an extra twenty days of twenty twenty. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. January one begins on at noon on the twentieth. Oh, but until then, on the podcast this week, President Trump, who was very busy over the holidays while we were away, issuing round after round of pardons and raising expectation that his family members and maybe Trump himself will be next. As this hell of a year comes to a merciful close, we're going to take a look back at the big national security stories that did not get enough attention. And we're going to talk about what we've got our eyes on for 2021, besides a triumphant return to the actual Jungle Studio. I think that's going to happen, you guys. I think 2021 is going to be our year. But it's going to be like the deforested jungle studio. I I went and visited it and all the plants, not most of the plants, not some of the plants, all the plants in the jungle studio were stone dead. Oh, my God. What's Maybe the it'll be like second? those forests that like, you know, everything catches Ooh. on fire and then like beautiful flowers emerge yeah. because you've yeah. allowed it. Uh, that's what we're hoping for. Awesome. This is all about optimism. We're entering 2021. Uh. We're welcoming it in with open arms. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Let's talk first about pardons before we get to the year end. Um, We've been off for a couple of weeks. I have legit lost track of who the president has pardoned. But okay, let's make sure we got Roger Stone. Right. Check. Paul Manafort pardoned. Those were like Mike Flint, George Papadopoulos. Alex Vanderswan. Oh, yeah. Remember him? Remember him? Like one of the only two guys that, well, no, actually, well, I'm trying to think who is, uh, who were the ones who were imprisoned? Manafort, obviously. Stone had his sentence commuted. And not so Michael Cohen. Not Michael or Cohen Rick and Rick Gates. Exactly. Yeah. Snitches get stitches and they don't get pardons, apparently, <laughs> is how this goes. Plus of a lot of other people, uh, some of whom may have actually merited a pardon, but it, they were sort of thrown in with the mix of all of this, you know, uh, uh, Lafayette Roost detritus. Uh, in many ways, obviously, I think totally unsurprising. Uh, I think that that the president did this. Everyone had been expecting it. But Ben, kind of get us started with this. I mean, putting aside, like as this is so often the case it, it, when we talk about extraordinary things that the president has done, not surprising. But I guess you're, you're guessing you're going to say still appalling. Talk a little bit about that, and then I want to get to the the questions too of who is left in the final days here. Uh, who may get their get out of jail free card? Yeah, so like I, I don't think there is anything surprising about this. And you know, I wrote a piece the week before it happened, saying that it was all going to happen and naming the people in question. And I missed Alex Vanderswan only because I forgot that he existed, not because there was like any reason to, you know, suspect that he wouldn't. Uh, So, like, you know, Donald Trump has been telling us in one way or another that he's going to do this for more than two years now. There was never a reason not to believe him. And so there still isn't. And in that sense, there's nothing surprising about it. There is something appalling about it just because it's the kind of thing that, you know, presidents shouldn't do. 
And because at least in the case of Flynn and particularly Manafort, it does kind of complete a transaction of silence for pardon that was kind of uh, imagined in the Mueller report, but not completed at that time and now is completed. And so if you're asking, like, should we be appalled by it? Well, of course we should. If if the question is, did I think anything other than, well, that's the appalling thing I expected him to do? No. And so, you know, it does prove that if you if you tell everybody that you're going to stab somebody over and over and over again, when you stab somebody, it'll be a little less shocking. Yeah. So look, I, I think this point about uh, this being the completion of a crime is, is a really important one. And it makes these pardons different from the many abusive pardons we've seen during the Trump era, right? So Trump's very first pardon was this sort of self-serving, troll the libs, abuse of power. Um, but this round of pardons is something actually different, particularly in the case of Manafort and Stone and Flynn, although I'd say Stone and Flynn to a lesser extent, only because the Mueller report was not as clear in articulating um, that these pardons were dangled in exchange for non-cooperation, that the individuals in question, that Manafort understood that was the message. He told, Paul Manafort told Rick Gates he would be an idiot to cooperate because otherwise he would get a pardon. Now, remember in Bill Barr's confirmation hearing as attorney general, whenever he was given this hypothetical, what if the president of the United States under investigation offered someone a pardon in exchange for not cooperating with investigators? Would that be obstruction of justice? And Bill Barr said, yes, that would be a crime. And so the idea that, you know, we have all the evidence spelled out, even sort of the most ardent Trump defender has already taken this precise hypothetical on and said it's a crime. And yet it now is completed. And we're sort of saying, well, nobody's surprised by it. It's it's hard to know how else to react because, of course, we aren't actually surprised. But it, it's still really, really significant and important that we understand what happened here. Yeah. So I, I think you're right, Susan, that it is really important to understand what happened here, especially with regard to Manafort and also maybe Roger Stone for the reasons that you said. But it strikes me that that from Trump's perspective, these pardons, first of all, let's just realize how many of them there are, right? And how all of these people who are getting pardoned are getting pardoned because of crap they did for the president or to get this guy elected president, which is just in and of itself an indicator of how high the the sewage spill is of the Trump administration. But with those couple of exceptions that you noted, most of them, the pardons are irrelevant to what they did or didn't do or whether they did or didn't cooperate with law enforcement. The pardons are Trump trying to decriminalize what was done on his behalf or in his name or even at his instruction. Right. He's trying to make this all go away. He's trying to retroactively make it not corrupt, not criminal. And he can't do that. Like there already is a Mueller report. There already was an impeachment. History already has the facts on this stuff. And the pardon doesn't wipe that stuff away. But I feel like his psychological need to pretend that this shit never happened or that there was never anything wrong with it 
is a big driver of what's going on here. So I, I think that's absolutely right. Although I also wonder if this isn't also about conditioning us for the big pardon that's coming, which is Trump himself and his family members. And one thing we've seen him do is sort of exhaust the outrage with this sort of episodic abuses that each time push the limits a little bit further. And so like obviously the pardon of his of himself, the pardon of his own family members, and not just for the Russia-related crimes, but like for everything else they might have done in office, the things that he might pardon them for that the public isn't aware of yet, um, that he thinks they might have liability. I do wonder if like that's the that's the moment we're all creeping towards. And, 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 and in the spirit of him sort of constructing everything like a reality show or a sort of, you know, 80s drama where it's building towards, you know, JR getting shot. Like, of course, that's what everyone is expecting, right? And, and in a way, I think that's what he is perhaps delighting in is that this is going to be the finale and his kind of his, his last act. And Ben, you know, a question that's on, I think, in a lot of people's minds is how do you construct a preemptive pardon like that for crimes that maybe you haven't been charged with yet? I mean, is it just as simple as him saying, Anything that Jared Kushner and Ivanka did in the past four years that was illegal, you can't prosecute them for it? Yeah, basically. So uh, the classic example of a preemptive pardon is Ford's pardon of Nixon, which Nixon had not been indicted for anything, though he had been named as an unindicted co-conspirator in the case against the Big Five. And uh, Nixon, I forget the exact language of the pardon, but it was basically for all crimes committed uh, during the period of his presidency. And uh, you can basically craft a pardon as broadly as you want, as long as it is confined retroactively to conduct that has already occurred, and as long as it clearly delineates what is within the scope of it and what is not, such that a prosecutor or a judge can say, okay, conduct X is or is not within the scope of the pardon. So we can hope that he'll actually issue those pardons like now, because I have no doubt that in the next 21 days, Jared and Ivanka and the president himself will commit more crimes. Yeah, look, I think one thing that's it's a little bit of an overlooked feature here of, well, of, of sort of um, legal scholars debating like the precise legal contours of how the pardon would be, it's ignoring how it operates in practice, which is that it's never going to get tested. Once, tr- once Trump has pardoned someone, future departments of justice, future attorney ge- attorneys general, um, they aren't going to try and test this stuff because- Unless it's a self-pardon. I think that's a self-pardon is a big red flag that says indict me. Right. And I think that's one place in which the incentives actually operate in the other direction, right? That if he pardons him right now, he's very unlikely to be uh, prosecuted as a former president. But a new attorney general might feel so compelled to test the legal validity of self-pardon. But for Ivanka, for Jared, for everybody else, you know, an attorney general is just not going to want to touch that. They're never going to want to actually test this stuff. I have a question, I guess, adjacent to that as well. You know, during the uh, impeachment, there was a lot of discussion about how, you know, a, a pardon is is, obs- is absolute, but a pardon given for a corrupt purpose, the giving of the pardon could be a crime as well. Is there a way to prosecute the Trump after he leaves office if it's determined that he corruptly gave the pardon? So in other words, dangle the pardon in front of Manafort to say, don't cooperate and or lie to investigators in order to get me out of a jam. So the more it looks like bribery the easier it is to do. The more it looks like obstruction of justice, the more you're going to get into this 
very arcane debate on which people reasonably disagree about whether the obstruction statutes apply to the president and under what circumstances. Yeah, but to plausibly imagine that this might serve as the basis of even an investigation, much less a prosecution, you would have to have facts so overwhelming, right? I mean, the the mere idea that there might be a question here that, you know, it's that's not going to be uh, investigated or prosecuted. The idea of, well, maybe is there sort of some form of bribe or, right, this this indictment about somebody trying to, to basically bribe their way into the pardon through the, you know, the various lobbyists around uh, around the president, unless you basically have a scenario in which there is like ironclad proof that that Trump said, you know, give me $50 and I'm going to give you this pardon. And it was like the most explicit thing. And the because and the evidence is so strong that a new administration just can't ignore it. Right. Like it's just it's so bad. And I don't there's nothing in the public record that suggests that even for the brazenness that like there's going to be something sufficient to to imagine a future like that. So he'll get away with it, you know, so to speak, uh, in terms of giving these pardons. So do we think at the end of the day, it is more likely that a subsequent president would so brazenly and, you know, I think fair to say unjustly use the pardon power? Or, you know, is this something that is more of a feature of Trump because he is shameless and, and has no frame of reference anyway for understanding why it's condemnable in so many people's eyes that he would do something like this. And so it's 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 unlikely that a future president would just because they wouldn't dare. I mean, three of the last five presidents have gone out with highly controversial pardons that the political opposition saw as to one degree or another corrupt. So Bush one went out with the Iran-Contra pardons Clinton went out with the Mark Rich and Susan McDougal pardons. Obama and Bush too both did not do this. I don't think either of the they went out with some controversial pardons. No, although Bush did have he tried to pardon Isaac Tweez and then had whenever it was whenever it was discovered he the family had made campaign contributions they pulled it back. Right, but that wasn't uh, so. But but that I think that was a genuine mistake rather than a thing that they like got caught and, you know, um, and Obama, you know, there were some controversial Obama pardons toward the end, but not in a corrupt way. And then Trump is going out in a, you know, blaze of pardon glory. And so I think you could imagine, I actually think it's, it's sufficiently bipartisan enough and Trump is up the ante enough that, you know, maybe it's time to think about a constitutional amendment to prevent lame duck pardons. I mean, I, I, I think there's something to to be said for that. Yeah. So look, I, I, I'm not hugely optimistic that we're actually going to see pardon reform, but I, I think that's possible. But I mean, you could also imagine things moving dramatically in the other direction. We talk a lot about um, re-enfranchisement of uh, former incarcerated people, former convicted felons. Um, one way that a number of governors have uh, circumvented that problem, the the sort of the, the legislative politics issues, is by issuing lots and lots and lots of pardons, right? And so you could imagine sort of Trump, you know, paving the way for, for Biden or 
future president to come in and say, all right, um, I'm not using this in a corrupt, self-interested way, but I'm going to now use it in this, you know, norm defying. This is just another tool at my disposal. I, I wouldn't bet money on that based on sort of um, what we know about Biden's instincts. But like, look, we're kind of through the looking glass here on this power. And we've seen no pushback, really, not just from Republicans, Democrats, like a few tweets here and there. And they're just kind of like, well, you know, knew he was going to do it. And so I, I don't think anybody can say for sure what happens from here. Do you think lame duck pardons would be called Lardens? <laughs> Lardon? Lardona's I, delicious. I just want to say that I've been trying to tweet an image of an eccentric-looking animal yes, every day, and yesterday. <laughs> oh, my, that's what that, that's the that's the frame. Okay, got it. And so my eccentric-looking animal yesterday was a shoe-billed stork. It was terrifying, and it was eating a whole duck. I mean, it had an entire duck in its bill, and I was really tempted to make a lame duck joke about, you know, getting eaten by a shoe-billed stork, but I didn't because I thought it might antagonize the Secret Service. Oh, dear. Well, what you didn't know is that that's actually a specialty farm in Louisiana where they make storducken. Oh. It comes pre-packaged. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a pardon. Uh, all right. We are bidding adieu, farewell, adios to 2020. Good riddance. Uh, sometimes it feels like we've talked about basically three stories on this podcast, like <laughs> impeachment, coronavirus. There's maybe one other that I'm overlooking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but we're gonna th- we're gonna take a little bit of a look back here at stories that were big but did not get enough attention. Uh, we think either on the podcast or, or elsewhere for that matter. Uh, and I think safe to say, probably a lot of these are not going away uh, when the ball drops uh, on a Friday or is it Thursday? Oh, it's tomorrow. Yeah, or I guess it's technically Friday morning. Whatever, you get the idea. First, let's talk about financial corruptions, financial shenanigans. We could go from everything from President Trump's tax returns, which still remain hidden, to national security decision-making that's been influenced by, or corrupted, might say, by a disregard for ethics, uh, investigations into lawmakers for trading stocks ahead of news of the coronavirus. Susan, talk a bit about this and, and you know, the broadly speaking, I guess, the way that, you know, financial corruption has now creeped into becoming a feature of national security policy and has to be considered even when we're making such fundamental decisions as voting for a president. Yeah, so I, I think this is um, not just the undercovered story of 2020, but kind of the undercovered story of the entire Trump administration and the entire Trump era. Like, the it's the corruption stupid part of this. And, uh, you know, there are countless examples and sort of emblematic moments of how brazen and dangerous and, and how clearly financial interests influenced national security decisions and foreign policy as a matter of common sense. And that, you know, this sort of notion of, well, we extend a presumption of good faith. And unless you can prove that Trump really did do this for, for sort of his own uh, you know, corrupt financial purposes, we just have to assume that this is the government operating um, uh, you know, in, in a usual and regular manner. I, you know, I, I just think it's, um, it's absurd on its face. Um, you know, the, uh, the revelation of Trump's tax returns, the amount of money he owes to foreign countries, the extent to which um, our sort of posture uh, towards places like Turkey, Trump's sort of in 
individual relationships with these various governments in various countries are clearly conditioned by his you know immediate individual financial interests and uh, you know Congress really didn't do much oversight in this space they they other than sort of um, pursuing some emoluments claims in court right go, so go, going to the judiciary instead of uh, attempting to fully investigate it uh, you know within their own legislative prerogatives um, you know Congress really didn't uh, didn't take this on directly um, and, and I also think that there's um, and I wonder if uh, the incoming administration uh, won't produce more evidence of this but to what extent a lot of the chaos the staffing decisions that we've seen in these final months of the administration are driven by things like attempting to sort of get through no bid contracts and and right the you know the, the ordinary waste fraud and abuse that goes on in the government there's clearly a lot of that that happened over the past four years it clearly made us less safe and I, I just for the life of me don't understand why that wasn't a bigger and more defining story. I have guesses as to why, um, but I, I find myself really disappointed, all things considered. You know, Susan, I feel like drawing that connection clearly between corrupt decision-making or decision-making that is not using best practices for the use of U.S. taxpayer dollars Connecting that to bad national security outcomes, that's the piece that's missing in a lot of cases. Like, I think it's important to realize that this kind of stuff, first of all, it's not just restricted to Trump and his personal financial interests or those of his family. Every senior member of the administration at one point or another has been implicated in similar dealings, you know, whether it was Mike Flynn and the company, the nuclear energy company that he promised he would work a decision through the White House so they could sell nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia without legally required safeguards. A blast from the past. A blast from the past, January 2017. Deep cut. Right. Or Rex Tillerson hiring this no-name tiny consulting firm run by some buddy of his to uh, do the State Department overhaul when it had zero experience with anything involving diplomacy or the United States government. I mean, there's just example after example here. And I, I feel like in a lot of cases, it's actually challenging to say this here national security decision harmed the United States because of the corruption involved. Like if if that nuclear technology had been sold to Saudi Arabia, then that would have been a good example. But it was exposed in the press and therefore it didn't go forward. And so to your point about oversight, like I think what this corruption reveals is the limits of congressional oversight when the administration is just intent on stonewalling every request and every court filing. And the media actually did a much better job here with help from, you know, anonymous sources inside the executive branch to expose this stuff. And it, to me, the lesson is that sunshine is still the best disinfectant and that the media is an important source of sunshine. So I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer on this one, but I think the situation is a little worse than that. And the reason is uh, that I think Tammy's premise is wrong, uh, that in fact, there have been cases where the connective tissue between bad national security decision-making and the corrupt interest on the part of the president and his family have been nakedly apparent. And in one case, it led to his impeachment. Uh, this was a situation in which, you know, the relationship between his 
personal interests. They weren't financial interests exactly, but his personal political interest completely supplanted that of the national security interests of the United States. Uh, It led to bad decision-making in a delicate part of the world with respect to a traditional adversary and a emerging potential democracy. It was uh, a very bad outcome uh, it was directly related to exactly these things. And the uniform position of the president's political party, with the honorable exception of Mitt Romney, was we don't care. And and so I think the problem is is a little bit deeper than that. It's that it's not that these things don't get uh, sunlight. It's that when they get sunlight, they actually don't get disinfected. So another big story that is going to continue to be, I would argue, the big story uh, for the many coming many years, the rise of China, particularly the rise of an authoritarian China, an authoritarian regime in China in the form of Xi Jinping's suppression of democracy movements in Hong Kong, which we did talk a decent amount of it when our dear friend Sophia Yan, uh, who is an award-winning reporter now, of course, for her great reporting from Hong Kong and elsewhere, and also on the plight of the Uyghurs. Let's throw that into the China bucket. Ben, you know, to even talk about China as the defining strategic relationship for the United States for the coming 10 to 20 years, I almost feel like undersells a little bit of how important this is going to be. But talk a little bit about what you think we missed in terms of just within 2020, some of maybe some of the key signals and moments that need to get quickly back on the radar for people as we turn the page. Yeah, so I want to start with Hong Kong on this, because in any other year, the fact that Hong Kong went from a status of admittedly uh, dominated by China, but uh, meaningfully self-governing in important material respects, and uh, much more liberal than the rest of China, having a basic commitment to things like free speech a lot of the time, although imperfectly, and a reasonable trade economy to that all being squelched and it being simply now an administrative district under Beijing that has a limited amount of autonomy subject to Beijing's grace. That is a big deal. And it is a deep betrayal of China's international commitments from uh, the time of the, the handover. And it's it's no small thing that that happened, even if you think about it without reference to human rights, without reference to the democracy movement in Hong Kong, just with reference to China's aggressiveness and activity. It's a very, very big deal. Now, I do think that your your broad point is correct, that this is so obviously the defining strategic confrontation of our time that it would be nice if we didn't keep getting distracted by little things like Russia and ISIS and uh, Donald Trump. You know, we do all seem to acknowledge that this is an immense challenge for the country and yet also are really distractible by the shiny things over there in a lot of different directions. And so we don't end up paying it the sustained attention that it needs. But I think you know, the speed with which China was able to recover from the coronavirus crisis relative to us is remarkable. And uh, I think we're going to be, you know, spending a lot of time over the next few years thinking about how to posture ourselves with respect to this relationship. 
Yeah, so I agree this is the defining challenge, but I think that we can't simply dismiss other concerns as shiny objects that distract us. A lot of those other concerns are really urgent and or important for American national security interests and for global security. And on a number of those concerns, we have to work with China. Climate. You know, is climate really an urgent policy challenge for the United States and the rest of the world? You betcha. And there is absolutely no way to have material impact on the future of the global climate without cooperation from China. Same with Iran nukes. And same, frankly, with, you know, repairing a global economy. And even if we figure out that we want to be less interdependent, we still want to be able to trade. And China is still a huge market. So, you know, I, I'm totally on board with recognizing that China isn't simply a rising power we have to compete with, but that it's presenting an alternative authoritarian model of success that it's aggressively marketing to other parts of the world. I agree with that. But I do not think that we can, you know, therefore say we're in a total war for influence with the Chinese all over the world. We have to be able to do stuff together. It also seems like that underlines the degree to which you know, to borrow the cliche, we have to be the change we want to see in the world. And what was the message in the Cold War, right? That's a nice way to think about it. Right? If you want to be the alternative to um, highly efficient and effective economic superpower slash authoritarian regime, um, maybe you should get your own goddamn democracy in order and be an example to the world of what the alternate uh, model looks like. Susan. Yeah, so this is um, this is an, an idea that I think is taking root among a lot of people that that somehow the Chinese are now offering this sort of this especially attractive alternative, or it's more uh, you know American degradation and sort of attacks on our own democracy make our model less good, and therefore you know the Chinese look better in contrast. Um, you know, look, let's not forget that the the coronavirus did emerge from China. That the sort of the China uh, uh, its own authoritarian structure blinded itself to an out-of-control pandemic that took over the entire world. Um, you know, so uh, yes, I agree. Um, uh, we need to get our own house in order in order to, um, you know, project this credible message to the rest of the world. Um, that said, I'm not at all convinced that, um, you know, even in our very flawed state, looking at, at our, our uh, model to the world uh, versus the Chinese model on paper, that we clearly have, um, you know, the, the better and more attractive alternative. And I, and I think the concern is really um, how do we, well, of course, still cooperating and communicating on essential issues, start imposing costs, start pushing back. Um, Of course, over the past four years, when the Trump administration has done nothing other than this sort of foolish, you know, self-inflicted harm trade posturing, you know, that that China has has engaged in this unchecked aggression. You know, it's I I, I don't want to be John Bolton-esque about it, because if there's any lesson in the past four years, it's how dumb, uh, you know, that that kind of foreign policy is. But, um, you know, the the idea that bullies respond to strength and resolve, um, I I think one of the, the real concern at this moment is um, what what is our strategic goal? What is our plan? What does it even mean to counter China now? Right. So, you know, it's sort of it's, it's emerged from this idea of, uh, of countering the, uh, you know, ideological commitments to communism into uh, limiting their, um, you know, market power in some way. And so I, I think that the challenge is that we don't um, we don't even appear to really understand, much less agree on like 
what are we, what is the aim here? Um, much less what's the, how do we strategically as- achieve that goal? Um, you know, and, and, and even looking back at the Obama administration, the pivot to Asia, remember those, you know, ah, the halcyon bygone days. days, right? And, and, and that's one thing I do think, and we'll be looking for, um, who does Biden pick to be um, ambassador to China? Um, we heard about Pete Buttigieg maybe being uh, thought about it before he became transportation secretary. I think that selection um, is going to um, be really, really revealing and really interesting um, about what Biden's instincts are on this. I'm just glad we're not losing Pete and Chastin to Beijing. Yeah, that that would have been sad for our D.C. culture. Oh, for my social circle to begin with. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not quite that mischievous. One last story before we round out this look back. Tammy probably flagged five, six, seven times at least this year that we and should talk right. about. Every time. And we should have talked about um, the the role of private sector actors or companies, hackers for hire, and the just extraordinary implications uh, of that on the national security space. This was largely, uh, it was an international story this year through the ongoing saga of a company called NSO Group. Um, Tammy, talk a little bit about that. Now is your moment. And, and let's tee this up for a discussion, uh, particularly in light of, you know, just the 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 massive hack of solar winds that we've seen, the reminder that cyberspace is a battlefield and it is a domain of espionage and it is not the exclusive province of governments. Right. And of course, espionage has never been the exclusive province of governments. But I think that what I saw beneath two big stories this year, one is that NSO group story, um, the creation of this tool called Pegasus that could infect iPhones and was apparently sold to some really nasty authoritarian governments and used to hack, oh, New York Times journalists and human rights activists. So that was story one. Story two that really drove this home for me was actually one that's rooted in the United States, that Reuters expose about former employees or contractors for the National Security Agency who then, you know, set up their own private company and marketed their skills to the UAE, which hired them, learned the technology and the skill set, and then fired them and took over the job themselves. So, I mean, what what both these stories have in common is that both the U.S. contractor that that went to the UAE and NSO Group developed their capabilities in concert with a government. In the NSO Group's case, these are people who came out of the very esteemed cyber unit at the Israel Defense Forces, and then obviously these NSA contractors. So, you know, this is technology that that democratic governments, Western, you know, U.S. partners <laughs> helped to develop in some sense, helped to build these capabilities, and then just completely lost control of where these capabilities went. Private sector actors went and basically sold them to the highest bidder and didn't care about what they were being used for. That, to me, is a, a flashing red light about export control. <laughs> and it's also a flashing red light about how vulnerable both government and non-government actors are to hacking that we can't even necessarily identify who's behind it. Even if we can identify who's doing it, we don't necessarily know who's behind it. 
Yeah, so I, I think this um, the, this was a really important story and is going to continue to be um, a, a really important story. And, and in some sense, it's um, it's a story of kind of the inadequacy of our existing tools. So Tammy mentioned export controls, right? The the attempts to use the Wassenaar Agreement and all of these various sort of international agreements um, in order to limit this activity have been um, just sort of an abject failure from top to bottom. Um, you know, I, I also think it's a lesson. You know, we talked to, talked a minute ago about sort of partnerships with China while also being competitive, um, right? The um, the global war on terror um, becoming something that blinded us uh, in ways and every other interest being subsumed to this idea of cooperation in the global war on terror and willingness to work with people, willingness to develop tools, willingness to give training driven by this interest that somehow if we could eradicate and outsource and, and, uh, and have more of the burden of this fight being placed on others by regional partners, um, you know, that, that that was so important to our interest. And uh, that is just not a mode of thinking that is going to work at the long term. Um, more and more as we uh, are, are sort of, you know, using these, I mean, dual use, not in a, right, obviously dual use technology has been around forever, but I mean, dual use in, a, in an incomprehensibly new way, you know, uh, you know, dual use 50 times over for every single feature of it. You know, that's going to be, I think, an incredibly um, uh, important and difficult question. Um, the other important difficult question is, um, you know, look, our uh, our allies, right? What uh, sort of uh, the Israelis think about uh, about these issues, right? Our inability to reach an agreement, even among uh, traditional partners, treaty partners, um, of sort of what the rules of the road should be, what they should look like. What does it mean to reach out into another country and to do something on somebody else's territory to somebody else's citizens? Who should be held accountable for that stuff? Who's responsible at the end of the day? Um, these are all really, really vexing, difficult questions. And, um, you know, at least we spent uh, much of the last decade talking about them. Um, for the last four years, uh, they've just kind of laid dormant. And, and I think now they're going to come out and, um, and bite pretty hard. All right, <clears throat> let us look ahead to things we can worry about in the future and not have to worry about in the past. The bites. <laughs> the bites. Now, this is the bite segment. I like that. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Susan, one thing that is going to confront uh, soon-to-be President Biden already is, frankly, and he's had to address it to some degree, is to what extent Trump-era scandals are going to be a drag uh, on the beginning of his administration. What's, what are your thoughts on that? Is this something that he needs to just quickly get past and put behind him and sort of Jerry Ford-style close the door and end the long national nightmare? Or is it not going to be that easy to escape the the gravity of four years of extraordinary corruption? Yeah, so um, Biden certainly isn't the first president to face this problem of how do you move forward in your own administration, obviously Gerald Ford being the most significant example, although Barack Obama, you know, to a very significant extent, um, kind of the first major challenge of his administration was deciding how much time to spend sort of bogged down on Bush-era scandals. I mean, we saw Obama sort of take a split-the-baby approach, right, so allow investigations, right, sort of do this sort of accountability thing and then say, look, um, we are 
aren't having these prosecutions. We're going to move forward and sort of intellectualizing that and, and, and sort of creating a conceptual framework and justification for it. Um, but really, I think there being pretty base political interests at play, right? Just wanting to move on. I would imagine um, in his deepest heart of hearts, um, Joe Biden would love to not have to spend a single minute of his administration worrying about what Donald Trump or members of his family did. Um, he has his own agenda. He wants to move the country forward. Trump is a polarizing figure. He's certainly not a figure that's going to shut up. And so to the extent that uh, the next administration is focused on him, that's, that's just going to sort of um, create durability within the news cycle. Um, it's also an area in which it's sort of a no-win situation. If Biden uh, you know, says nothing to his attorney general, but his attorney general does end up pursuing criminal prosecutions, um, even totally meritorious criminal prosecutions, that is going to look political. That is going to look politicized to significant parts of the country. That is going to make it more difficult for DOJ to rebuild this institutional trust and confidence. And so you know, it, it's, a, it's a really, really difficult thing. And I, um, as we see sort of Trump on this pardon spree, um, part of me doesn't wonder if um, if Biden um, wouldn't uh, mind if Donald Trump issued a lot of pardons and thus in really, really corrupt and damaging ways and thus kind of took the question off uh, you know, out of his hands. Because the problem is, is that this isn't Barack Obama's presidency and this isn't even Gerald Ford. This is a degree of widespread corruption and criminality in which ignoring it itself has sort of implications for the rule of law. Um, and so I, I think sort of as you know, we've talked a lot about like, what's the thing we're looking for in the new year? What's the thing we're looking for in this administration? That's the million dollar question in which I think all of Biden's instincts and rhetoric sort of indicate he wants nothing to do with this. And yet the entire Democratic Party and also to some extent, um, the, the sort of desire to rebuild norms to return to sort of ordinary processes is going to be like pulling him back in the other direction. And um, I, I just I'll be really interested to see how they move forward here. Also, you know, if, if if Democrats think that Republicans are going to somehow put the last four years behind them, they're kidding themselves. I mean, we're setting ourselves up, and I'm going to talk about this in my object lesson, uh, for, you know, a vote on January 6th in the Congress, in which it's increasingly likely that a number of elected members of Congress are going to vote to contest the Electoral College. Uh, so if you think that that half the uh, 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 of the members in our two-party system are are moving on and ready to put close the books on the past four years... No, think again. Just want to point out that Susan has gone over the course of this podcast from denouncing corrupt, self-interested, family preemptive pardons to endorsing them. Not endorsing <laughs> a critical distinction to saying that the political benefits and incentives might be different than Democrats view them at this precise point. I, I was joking, Susan. It was just teasing. I just am um, clarifying for our very earnest listenership. Ben, a look ahead. every word out of your mouth. <laughs> A look ahead question for you, Ben. Um, obviously, the two most immediate issues that President-elect Biden is going to face uh, are the pandemic, which uh, will still be raging on January 20th. Uh, hopefully, it will be coming maybe down a surge or a surge on top of a surge. And of course, vaccines are rolling out. Uh, and of course, an economy that is, I mean, do we want to call it a depression or recession? It almost seems an academic distinction at this point. It's in shambles and it's not going to get any better until the health crisis abates. So where do you put this for him? Is, it, is this a, 
you got to lick this thing in the first six months before you can even move on with your presidency? Or can he really more realistically try to fit it on the plate with all of the other items from the buffet and, and kind of put off the resolution of it for a little bit longer? So I think it's definitely the former. You do not have a presidency until these two issues, which are really one issue, are dealt with. The issue is the pandemic and its economic consequences, its human and economic consequences. And, you know, just as Donald Trump has not had an apart from that, Mr. President, how was the year otherwise, right? Joe Biden is not going to have a other than that, Mr. President, how is your presidency going? The presidency is the ability to, at least until this issue is under control, it is the ability to control this issue. And so to me, the key question is, is this something that we are on a glide path to success on? Because uh, though the numbers are awful right now, we are rolling out vaccine at a a good clip, as is the rest, a lot of the rest of the world. And so you're going to, the numbers will be awful for a few more months. But then the combination of the natural ebb of this spike, combined with the increasing number of people who are vaccinated, are going to cause a great recession of virus and a consequent economic explosion elsewhere. Is that the like, I think that's what's going to happen eventually, right? But is that the thing that's going to happen in the first six months of the year? Or is that something that's going to happen over the course of the first year, the first two years? And it matters a lot as you're thinking about what a Biden presidency looks like, what the time frame of that is, and how effectively you can compress it into as short a period up front as possible. You know, I'm remembering now the extent to which Trump and some of his advisors like Kudlow sort of didn't understand the serious threat that the pandemic posed to the economy because the stock market seemed to be okay at the beginning, like in the spring. And it really took until the stock market felt the effects of a contracting economy before they would take it seriously. And it strikes me that one of the biggest determinants of um, how the economic consequences of the pandemic are going to play out is something that has nothing to do with the pandemic itself and that is also not under Joe Biden's control. And that's how wedded congressional Republicans are going to be to fiscal austerity. Because there's not going to be an automatic expansion of the economy when the pandemic eases, because there's not enough money in the economy for people to reopen businesses. People are bankrupt. They're bankrupt. They defaulted on their loans. They lost their houses, whatever. And so without like transformative levels of government spending, I think economically it's going to be really, really hard. And you know, Republicans have a fundamental choice to make, which is do they want the American economy to succeed and Biden along with it? Or do they want to make sure that Biden fails and they don't mind if the American economy fails, too? 
And they've learned the lesson that you pay absolutely no price for brazen hypocrisy on these issues. If there's one lesson of, of the past four years, it's that uh, people who pounded the table about the deficit for, for decades in some cases can simply turn a blind eye as Donald Trump needlessly, you know, takes, takes the, the deficit into, you know, astronomical levels. And now all of a sudden on January 20th, they are going to rediscover their uh, long-standing fiscal conservatism, um, you know, and, and I think that, and they're, and they're going to bet that nobody holds them accountable for it and nobody really calls them out on it um, and that their base certainly doesn't call them out on it. And the sad part is they're probably right um, that, you know, that they, that they will be able to get away with this just like brazen, obvious, uh, you know, politics. Do you think they'll find it hanging in their closet right next to their spines? There it is. Oh, that's where it was. It was next to that tie I haven't had to wear in a long time. I hope they do like a, they're surprised, right? They're like, oh my God, did you guys see the size of the deficit? I had no idea. Did you know this? so big. <laughs> um, uh, Tammy, one subject that has not come up in our discussion, uh, whether looking back or looking forward, is terrorism. We're not talking about a U.S. national security policy defined by counterterrorism or counterinsurgency or any of the number of themes that were the dominant uh, uh, markers, really, of the past 15 plus years. And we don't even care when a bomb goes off in a downtown American city. Oh, that's domestic terrorism, Ben. We don't mind that. That's a whole. She other says thing. incredibly sarcastically. Right, right. We didn't even talk about that this week, but clearly we're talking about a world in which you know the intelligence community and the foreign policy establishment is going to be thinking about the world. It's going to be turning more towards nation states. Um, you know, Gina Haspel, I can remember in one of the very few public appearances she ever made as CIA director, made a big deal of talking about the CIA returning to its historic roots of espionage against nation states and the and you know the good old hard targets that we all know Iran North Korea Russia that is it seems to me is is a is a project government wide that is being maybe slow to lift off but nevertheless is going to be one that they're all going to have to address no i mean the world is changing and we're coming down from this you know war footing that we've been on since September 11 2001 well, so is it a war footing? I don't know. I think that what the quote unquote global war on terror did was it shifted resources and political support and influence to parts of our national security apparatus that didn't have it before and also shifted within those within parts of the bureaucracy like what it was they were working on and how they worked. So special operations became the king of the military, right? Drones and targeted killing became a key component of the intelligence community's work. And that was a big change from uh, the Cold War period and the immediate post-Cold War period. And it's also it created its own set of distortions. So I think, as you pointed out, Shane, some of this stuff, you know, they already started to build back, whether it was the military's pivot from the Middle East to Asia or um, the stuff that Haspel was talking about and sort of refocusing intelligence community capabilities on that good old work of understanding the motivations and intentions and plans of other governments, right, with respect to us, and then disrupting or deterring their ability to harm us using their own intelligence tools. 
that stuff is important and it's, it is coming slowly. It's going to continue to come. To me, the big question is not whether the trend continues in that direction, but whether something happens to interrupt the trend away from the global war on terror. This is a very delicate moment that hasn't been set up well by the Trump administration. The full transfer of American policy on Iraq and Afghanistan and soon enough, the war on ISIS in Syria also, to the civilian and diplomatic parts of the United States government. And can we do that? You know, can we manage stability in those places? Or are we going to confront ISIS 3.0? You know, are the Taliban going to take over the elected government of Afghanistan? And if so, how is the United States going to respond? That, to me, is a bigger question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it strikes me too when I have a conversation with people, you know, in the national security community, particularly in the intelligence community, like it all sounds good and it all sounds like necessary work. And then there's the question of how in the hell do you actually plan to do that? Right. I mean, in a country like China, where, you know, famously many of our assets have been rolled up, you know, or Iran, where we don't traditionally have a lot of people on the ground that tell us what the hell is going on. I mean, the world's only getting more complicated. I'm not aware of some breakthrough, at least on the intelligence front, that is giving us the insights that, you know, we obviously need that, that you talked about. Yeah, no, it's painstaking work. I will say that if I were joining the army now, I would be more excited to be a tank commander than I have been for the last 20 years. You get that fold a gap plan out and dust it off, baby. Everything old is new again. <laughs> Maybe that's the theme of 2021. Yeah. All right. Back to the future. Back to the future. Um, let's move on to object lessons. Um, ben, why don't you kick us off? So I'm getting in touch with my full Shane this th this week, and I'm oh, giving. Oh, I, can, I know where this is going. TV recommendation. Oh, okay, that's different. I have stumbled upon a wonderful Netflix show from Belgium called Undercover, which is a show about undercover police officers who camp out at a campsite next to a major drug lord in order to befriend him and thereby bring down his Belgian Flemish drug empire. It is There's uh, such a thing. Uh apparently Just imagining uh, the pitch. So they're camping. So they're, they're Belgian. Next to it and there's this <laughs> drug dealer. Yeah. So it's based on a true story. They're trafficking in, in, in illicit chocolate. <laughs> no, track, uh, actually, the show begins with an show. improbable claim that oh, uh, uh, this area of Belgium is uh, the source of a huge amount of ecstasy. No, that is not an improbable claim. Belgium is the source. I know this as the child of a former federal prosecutor who worked exclusively on narcotic stuff. Belgium oh, is, in why. fact, the, like a huge producer of, uh, of ecstasy wow. and methamphetamine. Yeah, so this is... I didn't say it well, wasn't true. I just said Belgium. it was improbable. It's like you're like, Belgium? Really? But it's, you know, brilliantly acted. The characters are super compelling. And uh, the characters who play the, the drug lord, his uh, wife, and the people around him are all really, really, it's really well done. Uh, and I recommend it very strongly. I have just finished the first season, and I'm watching the second season, and I'm, 
I recommend it highly. Undercover. All right. For your Belgian counter narcotics undercover needs. There really is a show for everything on Netflix. Yeah, for, well, for rational security listeners anyway. This is true. This is true. I'll, I'll do my object next. My object is a mistaken tweet, um, which was nevertheless fantastic and I thought was heralding uh, a whole new disruption uh, between the Republican Party and big business. But alas, it was a mistake. Um, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, announced earlier Wednesday uh, in a tweet uh, that he would be objecting during the Electoral College certification process on January 6th. I think there's only one other incoming senator who said that he will do this, which is Tommy Tuberville, who, like, last I checked, didn't know what the three branches of government were. Yeah. yeah Isn't I mean, it Tuberville? Who knows? It sounds know. so much sillier when you say Tommy Tuberville, though. Some minor football coach. Anyway, <laughs> the Auburn fans in the audience aren't going to like that. Josh Hawley tweeted, quote, millions of voters concerned about election integrity deserve to be heard. I will object on January 6th on their behalf. To which Walmart, yes, Walmart, <laughs> through its verified corporate account, replied, go ahead, get your two-hour debate, hashtag a sore loser. <laughs> Look, Walmart can tolerate a lot of things, but some cut-rate, greasy Ted Cruz wannabe coming in to assault <laughs> democracy? Uh-uh. So wait a minute. Why does Walmart have a dog in this fight? I mean, no, no, well, no, no, no. Clearly, Walmart's on. social media brand manager forgot to switch accounts before doing <laughs> Correct. That is exactly what happened. And was it removed? Uh, it has it been was, removed. It was they apologized. <clears throat> They've apologized. Apparently, the social but media. Did they fire the social media manager? They said they were not talking about this anymore. <laughs> because firing is just the start of what's going to happen. I think the, the 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 verb you want is not firing; it's flaying. Yeah. Well, well, but nevertheless, I th- I saw that and said, "Oh, <laughs> that's going to be interesting." Uh, but it does raise some interesting questions about whether corporations uh, are going to feel the need to weigh in on this. Uh, so far, not yet. Although when I saw Walmart doing it, I thought, well, shit, here we go. Uh, it's off to the races. And there's but- our ex- explicit rating, Shane. There you go. I think we there said so. Go. I think we said goddamn. God early. damn it. God damn it. Motherfucker, <laughs> Shane. We were so close. Fuck. Oh, fuck this year. Um, Tammy, what's your object? Okay. I have a triple play. I have an object lesson in triplicate. I have a triumvirate of terrific talent. Yes, my objects are Kathleen Hicks, Kelly Magsman, and Colin Call. Three friends of mine, three tremendous public servants, three noted defense experts who were this morning named by the Biden transition team to senior roles in the Defense Department, Kath Hicks as a nominee to be Deputy Secretary of Defense, Colin to be Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and Kelly Magsman to be Chief of Staff for the Department of Defense. I could not be more excited about seeing these three fantastic people go into government. Way to go. Triple play, folks. And Colin was uh, Biden's National Security Advisor now. He was indeed. Yeah. So there's some some people coming back. The, the band is getting back together, I guess, as it were. And that is going to do it for this band in 2020. That's it. We made it. 
We're well, closing the books. We got we got another twenty four hours, man. Oh, God, God only knows what could happen. Well, we won't be won't we won't be recording in that. <laughs> but nevertheless, we are going to see you again in twenty twenty one, which we all think and hope is going to be a much brighter year for everyone. But until then, of course, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy, Ben, what can you buy at the end of the year? Do we have like any post-Christmas sales at merchantplace.store? Like Lawfare reindeer sweatshirts or something? You can buy, um, by the way, I noticed that the awesome, I don't mean to hawk, other entities merch, but I noticed uh, Nadia uh, Tokolnikova tweeted recently the uh, merch store for Pussy Riot, and I just want to say it is fabulous, and I am going to support Russian dissidents by buying a whole lot of Pussy Riot merch. If you want to buy Lawfare merch, you can do that at thelawfarestore.com. Do we get like a crossover or something that would probably help our sales? I, can... I'm so down with having Pussy Riot on rational security. Okay, anytime. Uh, you can have all of us at, on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Of course, when you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review to help all of the many more people out there who haven't heard of us find us in 2021. Our audio, the engineer this week, is Zachary Frank. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Donald Trump and the Lardens. <laughs> yeah it's this no it's this great new band he's got so he's got manafort playing a jangling chain uh um he's got jared playing a piano with no strings attached is is flynn on a squeeze box no but well he could be and then don then, then donald trump is in the lead playing the world's smallest violin it's <laughs> very nice it's a yeah, great band. Nice. they're gonna cut a cd it's gonna sell like hotcakes <laughs> it's gonna sell like mike, mike flynn and his QAnon merch Sophia Yan not playing keys on that album. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We wish you the happiest of New Year's, and we will see you in 2021. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.